if you see Austin and Randy and Katie and Heidi later on, be sure to say hello to them. And um, if you see Marty and Jess, be sure to, to give them a little, uh, little thank you as well. All right. Well, you're joining us in part five of a series we're calling Doing Good. This is the last part of the series. And if you've been with us for a little bit, you know where we've been. But just to summarize real quick, we have tried to, I've tried to take you on a tour quickly uh, in this series called Doing Good that says that, that our salvation, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, that we are saved to do good works. Ephesians 2.10 puts it that way, that we are saved to do good works. And that doing good is actually a reflection of the character of God. It is an expression of God in the Old Testament, in the New. And last week, we talked about how um, it is really, there are two primary motivations for why in the world we should do good. Now, this morning, I have one last question for us in this series. And it's going to sound a little more formal, but I think this is proper English, but you can tell me if there's a better way to ask this later on. With all of this talk about doing good, I have this one single question this morning, and it is this. To whom do I owe good? To whom do I owe good? Now, you may think, if you're tracking with me this morning, that's actually a really simple question, isn't it? Like, to whom do I owe good? If, you, if you've been in the church for more than five minutes, what's the answer to that question? God, yeah, and everybody. In other words, is there anybody that you don't owe good to? Don't answer that out loud. Anyone ever hear the story of the Good Samaritan? Raise your hand if you did, okay. Who doesn't like raising the hand? Okay, probably a bunch of you heard it but don't like to raise their hand. That's fine. So the answer is everybody, okay? Like, you know that, and I know that, right? The answer is everybody. And the Good Samaritan story, even if you haven't been in church, you know that story. And this, the point is, hey, you know, do good to everyone. That's, how, that's what we take from it. Well, did you know, and I just learned this recently, in the 1970s, there was a study done at Princeton um, Seminary, okay? And it was a story about the Good Samaritan. It was a social science experiment. And here's what they did at, at Princeton. They brought people who were studying for ministry, a whole slew of seminary students. They brought them in. And they wanted to decide how, they wanted to learn who is more likely to be a good Samaritan. Is it people who are more intrinsically or extrinsically motivated, right? And what they did is they said, you know, we're going to take people um, who are studying for the ministry, we're going to invite them to a building across campus, and we're going to tell them that they need to uh, prepare a talk, a brief devotional talk, about the parable of the good Samaritan. And then what we're going to do is we're going to tell them that they're going to walk across campus to deliver that talk right now. And across, on the way, across campus, we'll do this, they did it over the course of several days, we're going to make them walk through a four-foot-wide alleyway, okay? And we're going to have someone staged there who is sick. And we're going to see how many people who are going into ministry who have just been asked to talk about the Good Samaritan, who are on their way to give a talk about the Good Samaritan, will stop and help someone who needs help. Okay? This was done again in the 1970s. Now, I don't know if you can get a more ready or primed group of people to do good than that. Right? These are people going into ministry, ready to talk about the Good Samaritan. Uh, do you know what percentage of people stop to help? It may be higher than you think, but I'll tell you. The answer is 40%. 40% of these people stop to help. On the one hand, that's really good. 40%. On the other hand, 60% of seminary students who are training for ministry, who are going to do a talk in the Good Samaritan, walk through a four-foot-wide alleyway. The reason they chose that alleyway is because you had to literally step over the person to continue on your way. Almost two-thirds were like, nah, 
nah, I'm going to go give a talk on the Good Samaritan. And so here's why I bring that up. This is one question, and we all have the right answer to this, but I want to ask you a more provoking question, perhaps. It's simply this. To whom have I done good? I want to ask about your track record, if I can meddle a little bit. To whom have I done good? Not to whom do I owe good, but to whom have I done it? And let me push it a little bit further. To whom have I done good in the last two months? To whom, as I look back on my schedule, whom I work with, the people that I see, to whom have I actually done this? Because I might say, yeah, everybody, everybody. I owe good to everybody. But if I look back, are there people that I've had in my home, that I've had coffee with, that I've stopped and taken an extra few minutes to talk to? Are there people that I consistently don't see who I'm working with? And I know they need help. I go to school with them. But I don't do anything for them. I haven't done what I actually say I think I should do. To whom have I done good, and to whom have I done good if I can push it in the last couple of months? I believe that we have a lot of desire to do good, and we know the right answer, but we're not too unlike those seminary students, I don't think, at least, from the Princeton in the 70s. Sometimes we desire, but just don't actually follow through. And I want to talk about that this morning, and to kind of get there, I want to share the story and I want to share the story that you have heard before. We want to look at this story of the Good Samaritan. But I want to look at it from a little bit of a different angle and ask a couple of questions that might be natural objections we have to it. And then I want to lead and finish with just one or two key questions that I hope can be helpful to you as we process this question. To whom do I owe good, if I can push further, and if I'm willing to be honest, to whom have I actually done good? And maybe, who am I actually ignoring? that I might not like to admit I don't want to see them. Now, for background quick on the story of the Good Samaritan, for those of you who know that story, you know a little bit, but we're going to share it in a minute. Um, it was this 700s BC, that's about 2,700 years ago from now. In the 700s, there was a, the Assyrian Empire overtook Samaria in Israel. And as they did, they took power. They decided what they're going to do to, to keep that um, to, to settle that country and establish their dominance is they're going to resettle people from around the region into that town, that city of Samaria. And so what they did is they did exactly that. They brought people in all over. In other words, they wanted to diffuse the, the Israelite-centric or Yahweh-centric style of worship. We want to take away the power of the people who were there. We want to change the culture. We're going to remove people who were born in that area and forcibly deport them, and we're going to bring in other people to live in their homes. It's terrible. That's what they did. What ended up happening is those people stayed in Samaria. Even after Israel regained control of their land, people from outside of the nation of Israel lived there. They, they had children. They looked at their wives sometimes like, how many boys do we have again? Like, I don't know, I forget. So confusing. Those boys ended up marrying girls who were Israelite, but they were Assyrian. Those girls ended up marrying boys. They ended up working together. They ended up going to school together. They ended up learning worship patterns that were different. And the people who were in Samaria began to be kind of interbred, if you will, and be became both interracial, interbred, interfaith, watered down to some degree. And what ended up happening over the centuries 
is the people who lived in Samaria were looked down on by the purists who were fully Israelite. Oh, you are a part of that group. You gave up the faith. You were the ones who married in. You don't deserve what we have. And the Samaritans became such a hated people group, an easy target for racial profiling, an easy target for people who thought they were, in, in the nation of Israel, were better than the others. And so when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, it is with the background of understanding that century upon century upon century upon century, over 700 years of history has already passed, and it is just a known fact in the nation of Israel that there are some people, there are some people who just aren't worth it, and it's the Samaritans. That's the way it was. And so I've asked a friend of mine, Ethan Hackett, he is rearing and ready to go. So Ethan is going to come on up here and read to us a story that many of us have heard before, but I hope we can hear it with fresh ears as Ethan, here we go, buddy, boom, I'm going to let you stand right over here, as Ethan reads this story that we have heard before. Go ahead, Ethan. There was once a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. On the way, he was attacked by robbers. They took his clothes, beat him up, and went off, leaving him half dead. Luckily, a priest was on his way down the same road. But when he saw him, he was... Uh, The priest was on his way down the same road, but when he saw him, he angled, angled across to the other side. Mm -hmm. Then a Levite religious man showed up. He also avoided the injured man. A Samaritan traveling the road came on him. When he saw the man's condition, his heart went out to him. He gave him first aid, disinfection, and bandaged his wounds. When he lifted him on his donkey, then he lifted him onto his donkey and led him to an inn and made him comfortable. In the morning, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take good care of him. If it costs any more, put it on my bill. I'll pay you back. I'll pay you on my way back. Okay. What do you think? Which of the three became a neighbor to the man uh, to the man attacked by robbers? The one who treated him kindly, the, re the religion scholar responded. Je Jesus said, go and do the same. Awesome. Thank you, Ethan. Can we thank Ethan? <laughs> man, I really, Ethan, I really appreciate that very much, man. Thank you, buddy, for doing that. That was awesome. That was awesome. And so it's a story we've heard, right? It's a story you've heard, but as we hear it in fresh, a fresh way, I hope it can um, remind us of what the power of that story is. And so Jesus tells a story. It's a great story, uh, except it's so provocative that it's like, wait, the Samaritan is a hero of the story, right? You know, what's going on with that? And the reason that he tells a story is, I mean, the truth is not everybody is, you know, our brother or sister in the faith, but everyone is our neighbor. And so we've heard that and we know that, right? Right? Don't we know that? Right? You've heard that before. We can just say amen and be dismissed, right? You know that's kind of the story. Well, let me, let, me, let me just push a little bit. Because I think there's a distance between what I believe and what I do. That's what the Princeton story, uh, study shows. There's a distance between what I believe and what I do. I believe everyone. I owe good to everybody. But I don't actually do it to everybody. There's some people that I, I know I do not see and I don't want to see. And maybe, maybe you're like that. I don't know. I'm not making that judgment. But maybe. Maybe we share some of the same struggle. I do know 
that it was in the 1730s when a, a preacher named Jonathan Edwards, he preached a message to his town, and it was called, his message was called The Duty of Charity to the Poor. The Duty of Charity to the Poor. 1730s. So I wanted to revisit a portion of what Jonathan Edwards had to say then, because in his town, here's what happened with Edwards. All of his town, the land had been parceled out and it was difficult for new people to get a foothold in that town. Conflicts began to grow between people who owed money and long-term residents and newcomers. And there was this angst of like, oh, why are they coming in and they don't belong here and we have our land and blah, blah, blah. And he, as a pastor, felt this urging that I need to talk about what it means to be a neighbor. And the, the word neighbor shows up 60 times in his message. And what he addresses, he addresses concerns from the 1730s by the way, I'm going to use his language. So for the next couple minutes, I'm going to quote some things that sound like King James. Um, but we can handle it for a few minutes, right? You don't have to. You can leave, I guess. Anyway, or you can get on your phone. But anyway, I hope you can handle it for a few minutes. But here's, here's Edwards. He talks about these objections that people had to the neighboring concept. And when I saw his message and the, the four things that he talks about, I'm like, oh, I am so glad. I am so glad that we no longer deal with these today. So here's what he said. First of all, here's what he said. Though they be needy, yet they are not in extremity. Isn't that great? Shouldn't we talk like this? Oh, though they are needy, they are not in extremity. Meaning, they are not yet, the, the people around me, the reason I don't help these people yet, the, those who are poor, those who are impoverished, those around me who might need help, because it's not extreme yet, right? Like they still have cable TV. They smoke. I mean, look how much money that is right away, right? They're not extreme. Like you don't need, they're not on the streets, like groveling for food. Like, well, they're not, they're needy, sure. But come on, they don't really have extreme need yet. <laughs> they're not abject hunger and famine going on. Good grief, if they would cut their cable TV and cut smoking, then they could buy the stuff that they need to get. And so they have the resources, and really it's up to them. So they are needy, sure, but they're not in extremity. Here's what Edwards has to say about that. He's like, he asked the question, do we wait until we're in extreme need to do something about our condition? When he says, love your neighbor as yourself, is that what it means to love your neighbor as yourself? When we love ourselves, do we wait till we're in absolutely extreme need before we do something to better our condition? We don't do that. Why would we wait then to serve people until they're in absolute extreme need? Because that's not loving people like yourself. Edwards puts it this way, he says, we ought to have such a spirit of love to our neighbor that we should be afflicted with him in his affliction. As they're afflicted, we too should be afflicted. And what he's saying is, listen, just because they're not in extreme need yet doesn't mean that we shouldn't help them. That's those who are holding off on doing this, he said to his audience, basically has not understood yet what it means to love your neighbor as yourself because we love ourselves before we get an extreme need. He said, there's another thing I see going on in my community. He said, here's what I hear. I hear we have nothing to spare. We have nothing to spare. Our budget is used up. I mean, my budget is tight. You know, inflation is going up. Gas prices are going up. I'm sure that's what he said back in the 1730s. We have nothing to spare. And anyone who, who's been around life long enough knows this is an excuse, of course. The reality is what we actually mean by that is I am not willing to burden myself for you right now. That's what we actually mean. That doesn't sound good to say it, but that's what that means. In other words, if it's going to require 
that I cut my budget to assist you, I'm not sure I'm ready to do what love would require of me. So when the Samaritan helped the man on the side of the road, he took upon himself a financial burden that was what love required. And so we have nothing to spare. I'm not sure that's true, Edward said. The truth is, he said, what I hear is, I can't help without burdening myself. It's going to cut into how I live my life. I might require a change in my calendar, a change in my budget, a change in my time, a change in who sits at my table around the holidays. It might require a change that I'm not sure I'm ready for. So I can't spare that time. I can't spare that family time. I can't spare my money. Third thing he said is what he saw, and this is a hard one to get through maybe a little bit. He said, the poor are of a very ill temper and ungrateful spirit. He has brought himself to his poverty by his own fault. Again, old language. Meaning this, that <laughs> here's the deal. We, we like to help people who look like they need help. So the single mom who has been abused by a husband who's in a domestic violence shelter, who's done nothing wrong of her own accord, who thanks us for what we do for her, who is on her way toward making progress, who is attached to goals and making progress, we will support all day long. The problem is there are very few people like that. Extremely small portion of people like that. And what Edwards was seeing is, you know, one of the reasons why we don't do this is we tell ourselves, well, listen, they're not, they're kind of cranky, to be honest. Like, they don't even, they're not thankful for what we've given to them. And the reason that they're in poverty is because they've done this to themselves. Now, Edwards would make the case, he said, the objection to this is pretty simple. He says, Christ loved us, and he was kind to us, and he was willing to relieve us, though we were very hateful persons of an evil disposition, not deserving of any good. So we should be willing to be kind to those who are very undeserving. His point is, we were here, and Christ saved us. We were of an ill temper, an ungrateful spirit, and Christ saved us. We were brought to poverty by our own fault, and Christ saved us. And so to hold that to someone else and say, well, <laughs> I'm going to help you when? is to misunderstand the gospel and to not have our heart warmed by the depth of where the gospel really reaches us. And finally, he pushes further to another category of people that we sometimes object to. He says, and this is a harder language, sorry. He says, what if they are come to want by a vicious idleness and prodigality? <laughs> Shouldn't we talk like this all the time? Wouldn't that be amazing? What's he saying? In other words, they have come to want, they, in other words, they're needy. The reason they are stuck where they are is because the, their vicious idleness, they don't go to work, they go to work and quit, they don't go to school, they are so idle, they sleep in, they stay up late, they're going to parties, their idleness is creating vicious cycles of addiction, of poverty in their own lives, and prodigality, meaning they're walking away, they're immoral, they're choosing what the prodigal son chose, they're sleeping around, they're in excess, spending money wildly. You want us to help those people who are doing those things? Like, huh, come on. Again, Edwards would make the case. Do we understand from where we have been saved? Were we not in the same condition before we came to faith and before Christ came to us? Were we not also there 
were we not also opposed to the things of God? Further, and he'll make the case, we have to consider the impact of the family of the people who are most impacted by this. So as I think about these objections that Edwards raised back in the 1730s, I am glad that we don't deal with this today. At least we can look at what happened in the 1730s. Because sometimes there's a difference and a divide between what I believe and what I actually do. To whom do I owe good? The answer is everybody. Well, now if I ask a question, to whom have I done good? And if I push it further to say in the past two months, past month and past week, now I start to press a little bit. Now I start to push down what we believe to what we act and how we do what we say that we believe. And I think there are some objections. Maybe these might resonate with you. I will say they've resonated with me. They've convicted me of things that live in a darker side of my heart that I wish weren't there. Now, I want to ask another question. You've heard the story of the prodigal son, or excuse me, the Good Samaritan. I want to ask this question. Who do you relate to in the Good Samaritan story? Who do you relate to? How do we see the story? Through which character do we see the story? And most of us, myself included, most of us will see it through the eyes of the Good Samaritan. In other words, isn't that the point? Isn't the point to say, you know, um, after hearing the story, I want you to go be the Good Samaritan. Go get him. Now, what if you see the story from a different angle? What if you imagine that you are the one who is robbed on the side of the road? What if you see yourself that way? Instead of seeing yourself as the future Good Samaritan, what if you imagine this story and imagine life through the eyes of the victim of the robbery? You're laying destitute on the side of the road. You've been beaten up badly. Your identity has been stolen and gone from you. Your possessions are gone. Your capacity to move and heal yourself is gone. You're beat up so badly people can't identify you for who you are. That's why the priest and Levite went to the other side, by the way, because they didn't know who this person was. Because if they were unclean, they shouldn't, they're not allowed to touch them, per the law, at least their interpretation of it. I imagine this story differently. Just allow it for a minute in your heart, if you were the one beaten up on the side of the road. Now, wouldn't you be glad, wouldn't you be glad if somebody, if somebody took the time to come over to you? If you could still see and you could see the priest coming, wouldn't your first thought be, oh good, here comes the seminary student on their way. I'm sure they will help me. You can't communicate because you're so incapacitated and they walk to the other side. How do you feel? Here comes the Levite, a proven leader, a teacher of the law, one who knows the right thing to do. Here's someone who knows God in his heart. He can help me. All you can do is see it, but you can't communicate. And they walk by on the other side. And then here comes a Samaritan. Maybe, maybe your vision of this person is someone who's to be hated, someone who's immoral, someone who's unethical, someone whose history is rooted in things that your family doesn't value, and they are the ones who come over to you, and they give you time to heal. How do you feel now? One thing I didn't tell you about the study at Princeton is that when they gathered these Princeton students into this building over here and prepared them that they were going to walk across campus to share their story in this next building, they also gathered them in groups of Three, three different groups. To one group, they said to them, you know what? You are actually early for your assignment. You have plenty of time, plenty of time to get there. You should head over to that building, but you've got plenty of time. To the next group, they said, you're actually on time. Like, you'll make it, but you need to leave, but you'll be on time. To the next group, they said, 
you're actually late. I'm sorry, we kept you a little longer than we should have. You need to skedaddle and get over there. Do you know how this impacted the response rate of people who helped the person in that four-foot alley who was sick? Here's what the data says. In this study, 63% of people who felt that they were early to their assignment stopped to help. 45% who felt like they were on time stopped to help. And 10% who felt they were late stopped to help. It's profound, and I'll tell you why it's profound. For these two questions that come up next, I have to ask the question, does my current pace allow me to do good? Like, this study just reveals the fact that if we're buzzing around from thing to thing, from school to work to family to next to the 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 next, we just don't have capacity to do good. Even that we think we value up here, we don't have time is what we feel like. To do it. Does my current pace allow me to do good? I want to ask this further question. Where can I build margin to do good? Where can I build margin? It is a powerful study to see that when people feel like they're late, they're running around, they got the next thing to do, their calendar is full, they're trying to accomplish and take over the world, and everything's going to be awesome once things get done, whatever the things are that need to get done. We just don't see. We don't think we have time to see this, the people we work with, the kids we go to school with, the people who live in our communities, who live next door whose kids aren't reading, whose dads never come home, whose parents struggle with this and that, who struggle with depression, anxiety, thoughts of suicide, who have food shortages, who are struggling with their cars and paying their heating bills, who are dealing as a senior citizen on a fixed income with inflation going crazy right now. We just don't see it. <laughs> we just don't see it because I, I don't have time to see it. And I, I, would, I would bet that if I saw someone who had time to come help me. I wouldn't care who in the world they were. I would just be so glad that they had time. So I just want to encourage you, first of all, to ask this question. Where can I build margin to do good? Is this a space where you might need to grow, where I might need to grow? I'm not asking you to totally change your schedule. I'm saying, can you think about going to work just five minutes early? Taking an extra few minutes on your lunch break to talk to someone? Getting to the cafeteria in the school and taking a minute to consider who's around the room? Let me just take a breather. Let me just take a minute. Let me just build a little margin. Is there someone at the end of your work day, maybe a five-minute window? I want to text somebody. Make it a discipline. I want to, I want to just build a, a five-minute window. I want to text someone and, and encourage them for where they are. I just want to remind them that I'm caring for them and I'm praying for them. Little things, little things. Who can, I, who can I have over during the Thanksgiving season to my place? Who are we having around our home for table fellowship, if you will, for conversation? Who can I go grab coffee. Where, where can I build even just a little bit of margin to do good? Because we can believe it all we want to. We can believe that everyone, I owe everybody good. But if we feel like we don't have time, we're just going to keep walking past people. Now, with that being said, here's this last thing, and with this we're going to wrap up this series. You can have all the time in the world, but if our motivations for serving people are off, it can be toxic. We can be the ones who serve those poor people. We're the ones who are the benefactors, giving to them you know, what they need. It creates a terrible environment. I want to ask this final question, and that is this. Excuse me, it's not a question, it's a statement. Before I can give this neighbor love, I need to receive it. Before I can give this neighbor love, I need to receive it. 
the reason this Good Samaritan story is so powerful is because we aren't just the Good Samaritan. Until we really come to terms with the fact that we are the robbers, on the, we are the ones who are robbed on the side of the road, that we are destitute in our condition, absolutely unable, like Ben was saying earlier at the beginning of the worship set, absolutely unable to respond to God. Until I receive that love and see this story through those eyes, come on, I'm not, I'm not going to be willing to help people who are very different than me, whose morals and ethics are very different than me. I'm going to be afraid of people who have different value systems. I'm going to want to run from and create laws from. But, think about this though, if you are really on the side of the road. Do you care who comes over to you? Are you going to ask them, excuse me, how addicted are you to alcohol before you help me? Hold on. How much have you slept around before you help me? Hold, hold on, hold, hold on a second. Are you over the addictions yet? Hold on. Have you stopped cussing yet? Hold on. Have, have you gotten a hold of your budget before you help me yet? Like, at that point, where we are, absolutely destitute on the side of the road. I don't care who you are. You are willing to help me. Thank you. Because I have nothing. And until my heart is warmed to the fact that that's where I was before God, and he said, you have nothing, and here I am to help you. Before I can give that love, I need to receive it. I need to receive it. And friends, I hope that at some point in your life, you have received that. I don't care if you've been in church for 60 years, 80 years. Some of us, because we've been in religious circles so long, our hearts are actually harder because we've been performing for a long time. I just want to encourage you, take a minute. Take a breather on this. Take a breather. Set a margin. Step back. Look at this story again and how God has made you. And how he's come to rescue you. Consider again what it looks like to be the one on the side of the road that God has come to save. Because when God has come to save me and I'm there, I will tell you what, as the one laying on the side of the road, I have no enemies who I would turn away help from when they come to me. And that's where love is driven from. That's where it's driven from. Understanding where I am what God has done. And in that case, I don't care. I don't care who you are and what you do. That you give time to me, man, I am so grateful. So before I can give it, I need to receive it. And I hope that you have received that kind of love. I don't care how long you've been in the church. I hope that you have felt that, have received that, have let your heart be warmed by that love. And if you haven't, if you're struggling, if you want to talk about that, man, that's what I would love. I would love to talk more about that. All right. Guys, thanks for being a part of this Doing Good series. Doing good. We're saved for it. It's built into the character of God. But truly, before we can give it, we need to receive it. Will you pray with me? Our great God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the time to be together this morning to wrap up and kind of cap off this series with a look again at the story that we know we're familiar with. But I pray that you would help us to see, maybe through fresh eyes, who we really are and what our obligation is, what it is that we owe to people. I pray that you'd help us to build margin uh, where we need it. Even just a few minutes here and there, even just a reorienting question to start the day, an extra moment in our workplace, with our schools, with our families. 
to back up and say, well, I need, I need a little bit of time. Because when I'm rushed, I'm way less likely to see and way less likely even to help those around me who might be in need. And so I pray for our hearts that you would continue to soften our hearts from the temptation over the years that can come to think that our religious activities prove our value and worth and prove that we're worth saving on the side of the road. I pray that you would guard us from that hardness. I pray that you would help us to receive afresh your love for us, that our hearts can be softened again to see, embrace, and engage with the most vulnerable around us, that we can be a people who learn to do good with courage. In Jesus' name we pray.